All right, does anybody need a handout tonight still? All right, raise your hand if you do. We'll get you one. It looks like we're pretty good. All right, let's start with a little Bible quiz. You need one, Dave? I got one right here. All right, where in the Bible do we have the office of deacon mentioned? All right, where in the Bible is the office of deacon mentioned? Raise your hand if you know. No, it's not a trick question. I would not do that to you. Where is it mentioned in the Bible? Yes, Mary. 1 Timothy 3, right? We'll look at that text. 1 Timothy 3, in verse 8 through 8, uh, 13. You can turn there. 1 Timothy 3, where else? Yeah, Dave. Okay, is the word deacon actually used? Trick question. Oh, that's what he meant by trick question. Okay. Yes, somewhat. I would say, I would say, and we'll talk about this text. I think it, it sets a paradigm for us, how we're to see them functioning. Um, so I would say those are pre-deacons is maybe a good way to say that. But the word is not used. In fact, uh, the Greek term is used both for the servants of the tables, the seven that are chosen, and for the servants of the word. So in that case, both are called servants. Okay, so we have one explicit, one maybe implicit. Do we have another explicit reference? There is another one. Philippians 1.1, to the overseers and deacons, right? To the saints, the overseers and deacons. There is one more that is debatable, and it's controversial to a degree. I see your hand, Jim. Yes, sir. You want Romans 16.1? Yes, I do. And who is that mentioning? It is Phoebe. So there's a debate about... Women deacons. We will not try to settle that this evening. (laughs) We will not go there. All right. Um, We'll mention it and we can talk about that. But that is not part of um, what we're working to change in our our current constitution. Um, I'd be glad to talk through that. That is a fascinating discussion with good arguments exegetically even on both sides. And I think there's some things that I would say it's a complex issue in You need to make sure you get the elders piece right before you work through a deaconess um, role. Let's look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. In a few minutes, we'll go to uh, Acts 6. Uh, Deacons, verse 8, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's ask for his help now as we consider this topic together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it leads us and guides us. I pray especially tonight as we think of this familiar topic, it's familiar to us because we've all been in churches with deacons and they've served in many different ways. Uh, Because of the amount of biblical information, there's some level of appropriateness there. But Lord, may we seek to refine our thinking, not based on our experiences or what we're comfortable with, but based on what we see from your word. Help us to always be a people of this book, seeking to be refined by it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we we asked this uh, a long time ago when we first started this series on elders and deacons, but I want you to see it again. How many of you have ever been a church with an elder-led congregationalism? They had elders. Raise your hand. Okay, so a few of you, all right? Most of us have been in churches that have deacons, um, so we want to talk through that. And because of that, there's probably some things that we want to wrestle with and let the word, let the word correct and refine us 
Um, I don't think in the way that we are practicing our church government currently, this is meant to be um, a hard correction for us. I don't sense that we are not um, seeing our leaders as spiritual leaders first and foremost that are serving the body well. I'm grateful for that. But we do want the the word of God to continue to shape us and refine us. So we'll work through um, these nine qualifications um, very briefly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. And we'll answer these questions that are listed there on your sheet. All right. Who is qualified to be a deacon? They are men that are first dignified. This term normally refers to something that is honorable, respectable, esteemed, or worthy. It's closely related to the word respectable, given as a qualification for the elders. Secondly, they're not to be double-tongued. So you're looking for men uh, whose tongues are careful and accurate with what they say. Those who are double-tongued say one thing to certain people, but then say another thing to others, just to curry favor with people. Or they say one thing, but mean another. They're two-faced and insincere. Their words cannot be trusted. So they lack credibility. Third, they're not addicted to much wine. A man is disqualified for the office of deacon if he is addicted to wine or other strong drinks. Such a person is undisciplined. He's lacking in self-control. This would disqualify him. Not greedy for dishonest gain. If a person is a lover of money, he's not qualified to be a deacon. Especially since deacons often are responsible to handle financial issues within the body. Fifth, sound in faith and life. Paul also indicates a deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is one I think we need to think about a little bit more carefully. Um, We'll talk about this as we go and keep clarifying. But the phrase, the mystery of the faith, is simply one way that Paul is speaking of the gospel. They need to know what they believe. This statement refers to the need for deacons, the servants in the church, to hold firmly to the true gospel, to be exemplary in their understanding and even in their communication. You see, this qualification doesn't merely involve one's beliefs, for he must also hold these beliefs with a clear conscience. That means he's acting on these beliefs with integrity. His behavior must be consistent with his beliefs. One author says deacons are not exempt from knowing their Bibles. In fact, they will often be in a situation where they have opportunity to speak biblical truth. The question then is not whether deacons will be theologians, but whether they will be good ones. That's challenging, isn't it? I think sometimes we tend to think, well, the deacons of the church or currently how we're thinking of trustees, they're just, you know, the physical managers. Not at all. Not at all. Leaders in the church are to be spiritually qualified. Again, you're not taking issue with me in a debate about that. You look at the text. Where does it say they need to be skilled in? They're to be godly men. Godly men. Character is what counts here. Deacons must know the faith. One cannot hold what one does not know. So the kind of man we're looking for is one who is eager to grow in a clear understanding of God and of human need, of Christ and salvation and so on. He'll be hungry to learn the things of God. He cannot disassociate himself from the teaching and the submission to God's word on a regular basis. He's going to be active in what the church is doing as it learns of God together. They're to hold the faith. So we're looking for those who embrace God's word with humble gladness. Sixth, they are blameless. Paul writes that deacons must be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. This is a general uh, qualification. It refers to a person's overall character. Although Paul does not specify what type of testing here, at a minimum, the candidate's personal background, his reputation, his theological positions should be examined. Again, these are spiritual leaders in the body. They're just leading with a different function. The congregation should not only examine a potential deacon's moral, spiritual, and doctrinal maturity, they should also consider the person's track record of service in the church. Is it humble, helpful, gracious service? Seventh, a godly wife. Now, here's, here's the debate. 
It's debated whether verse 11 refers to a deacon's wife or it's very possible that it's referring to just a woman. And that would mean a deaconess. For the sake of the discussion tonight, we'll assume this verse is speaking about the qualifications of a deacon's wife. Um, According to Paul, then, deacons' wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So like her husband, she's dignified and respectable. Secondly, she must not be a person who goes around spreading gossip. She has to guard her tongue. She's promoting the unity of the body. She's building up others with what she says. She's not always looking for things that she wants to get right or corrected. There's certain ways that she goes about communicating. She must be able to make good judgments and not be involved in things that might hinder such judgment. Finally, she must be faithful in all things. Again, a general requirement, which functions similarly to the requirement for elders to be above reproach. Just two more. A deacon is to be a husband of one wife. The best interpretation of this difficult phrase is to understand it as referring to the faithfulness of a husband toward his wife. He must be a one woman man. We talked about that when we talked about elders. There must be no other woman in his life to whom he relates in an intimate way, either emotionally or physically. And lastly, manage children and household well. A deacon must be the spiritual leader of his wife and children. Now, perhaps the most surprising thing here in these lists of what this person must be is Paul's relative disinterest in what potential deacons are able to do. Right? Think about that very carefully. This is a character list. Um, I heard recently an, an illustration that I thought was helpful. David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times opinion pieces, he talks about at the end of life, um, thinking about somebody's um, resume virtues versus their eulogy virtues. Have you ever heard that, of that before? We spend a lot of time working on our resume virtues. What have we accomplished in this life? But what really matters about us are those eulogy virtues, our character. Who are we as a person? You see, we can find people with skills that will help the body if their character is godly and strong. That's priority one to Paul. This paragraph is not then about a skill set. Its focus is squarely on who deacons must be. Let's not miss this easy-to-forget lesson. These texts, the qualifications for deacons and elders, show us that God cares more about character than gifting. That doesn't mean gifting doesn't have any part to play at all. But what matters most is that character piece. How we're walking before our God. This doesn't mean that a person has to be perfect. It signifies that they must be humble, repentant, and example before the flock. Now, uh, I read this week, again, uh, I worked through this book um, that we have out on the back table, Deacons. Uh, It was actually uh, better than I remembered. It was excellent. It was excellent. Um, There are a lot of things that he helps clarify. I have three copies, extra copies, I'll give away tonight if you are interested. Um, I'll leave them up here. In his book, he provides some caricatures of wrong views of who should be deacon. Now, some of these are tongue-in-cheek. I I don't want to share these with you with the understanding that I'm pointing at anything that's happening in our body. The only reason I feel comfortable sharing these with you is because they don't reflect us. But I do feel like they reflect the kind of ways people have thought of deacons in my experience over the years. So perhaps you'll recognize some of them. I'll share just a few, not all of them. Uh, One caricature of a wrong view of who should be a deacon. Pastor in training Peter. He did great with alliteration. This this guy is in a conversation and and somebody says to him, I heard they're making you a deacon. How long do you think uh, before they make you an elder? Peter is used to such questions at church. He's not bothered. If anything, he's a bit flattered. But the office of deacon is not training wheels for becoming an elder. It's a different office with a different name, requiring, in many cases, different gifts. Diaconal service is too significant in the Bible, too glorious to be a mere stepping stone toward anything else. That doesn't mean those who will serve as deacons won't ever become elders, but it shouldn't be that's the main thing that we're thinking about in those roles. 
Uh, the second one, Toolbox Terrence. Many days, Pastor Tom is glad to have Terrence in the church. Terrence is a successful general contractor who may own more tools than the rest of his small church combined. What did Tom do in the church when the water heater broke three winters ago? He called Terrence. And what did he do when the HVAC system sputtered out on that blistering Saturday in June? He called Terrence. There is seemingly nothing Terrence can't find a way to fix. When it comes to tending the church's building and grounds, his know-how is unmatched. Wouldn't Terrence make an ideal deacon? Well, not so fast. Maybe. But we forgot to ask the most important question first, right? The author writes, I haven't told you whether he's a mature believer yet. A deacon is far more than someone who knows his way around Home Depot. (laughs) Does he know his way around his Bible? That's what we ask first. Uh, Spreadsheet Sam. This is similar to the last one. Our church budget is a mess. We're looking at another financial shortfall and don't have any clear income projections for the next fiscal year. Why don't we make Sam a deacon? Doesn't he fix people's money problems for a living? When it comes to shrewd economic sense, Sam is unrivaled in the church. Wouldn't Sam make an ideal deacon? Again, not so fast. I haven't addressed whether he's a mature believer. Spreadsheet wizardry is a welcome skill, but it's not sufficient for holding an office in God's house. That's not the first thing we ask or look for. Two more. Corporate cliffs. Seminaries teach ancient languages, bless their heart, but they can't teach executive skills. What this church really needs are some decisive deacons with business sense. Cliff has been a member at Pine Hill Community Church for 30 years and has served as a deacon for 20 Around the time he joined the church, he started a company in his basement, and now it operates out of a skyscraper downtown. It's no secret Cliff has done well for himself in the marketplace. He now has scores of employees and decades of business savvy. Isn't Cliff an ideal deacon? Once more, not so fast. We haven't considered whether he's a mature believer. Executive leadership experience can be an asset. I want you to hear that clearly, what this author is concluding. He's saying that is not something to ignore, but it's not the first thing to examine. Lastly, pseudo-elder Steve. Welcome to First Baptist Church, where pastors say things and deacons run things. Seriously, though, if you want to get something important done around here, convince the deacons. Steve sits on the board of a few organizations, but none gratifies him more than serving as a deacon at First Baptist. He loves his congregation. He cares deeply about its long-term health. Steve is fine with the pastor leading the way on spiritual things, but in his mind, it's the deacon's job to oversee everything else, right? It's this division of labor. Deacons shouldn't dictate what elders do on spiritual matters since that's their lane, and elders shouldn't dictate what deacons do with their with pragmatic matters since that's their lane. So it's probably too hard of a line between the two offices. The question I want you to ask and begin thinking about in your own mind is, do these examples accurately reflect how the Bible shows these two offices interacting? Now again, we don't have as much information on this office as we do about elders, but I think we can ask and answer What do deacons do? And we're given this paradigm, this example. Let's go to Acts chapter 6. All right, let's look at these proto-deacons. Verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, that's all the believers in Jerusalem, a complaint by the Hellenists, those are are Gentiles, um, Greek-speaking believers, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So just stop a minute. Think This is church growth at its finest in the New Testament, the Acts model that we all say we want to get back to. No troubles, right? Absolutely not. This is one of those nagging administrative issues that come up in every church. Certain people are being excluded. We understand those kind of problems, don't we? One group is saying, I'm being left out of this group. And this isn't some minor thing. 
A widow in that day was destitute without help. This is a big deal. This reflects on the testimony of the gospel itself, on the glory of God. This isn't a minor issue. So number two, verse two. And the twelve summoned, the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Notice this affirms what we just saw in 1 Timothy 3. Who are they looking for? Get the best organizers you can find because this is an organization problem. That's not what they said. Men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. In verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they showed Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenaeus and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And notice the result. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, those opponents of the gospel, became obedient to the faith. Now, what we need to recognize is kind of what we pointed out in talking about whether this pattern or passage should be included in the list. Uh, In the text, the title deacon is never used to describe the seven men chosen. There's lots of things this doesn't answer. Some people give this too much weight as to how we select But if you think about it, there's potentially 8,000, some even say 20,000 disciples here. And they come up with seven. There certainly had to be some sort of organization or direction from the leaders as to which guys they should be choosing. Also, some of these men turn out to be like Stephen, an evangelist who's preaching and teaching and seems to be functioning in some ways like an elder later. It's, It's just not clear. I don't think we're supposed to draw fine lines here and say this is clearly the offices. Apostles were not overseers or elders, but in a sense, they're functioning in those two ways. First Timothy is written about 30 years after the events of Acts 6. Remember, Acts is this transitional period of time in which the church is figuring out how to be organized and how they would function. So it's helpful to see what's being worked out, but not give this passage too much weight as to dictate how we are to de- design our organization. Now, the text describes a dispute within the church concerning a very specific need. This is a need. This is a benevolence need. Widows of a different ethnicity are being underserved. They're being neglected. The overseers here are the apostles, and they recognize a disunity within the body. Serving is certainly not beneath these men, but they can't do everything. There has to be some kind of clarity as to what the roles are. They recognize they need help. And notice their main concern in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They're not to forsake their primary role of proclaiming God's word and praying. So they direct the congregation to select these servants to meet the need. And they need to be men of excellent, exemplary character. Because they're going to be leading and delegating in this task. They're going to have to problem solve. They're going to have to deal with conflict and hurt feelings and misunderstandings. The church in Jerusalem is large at this point and the needs are great. These men are to be leading servants. So the apostles here are serving through their teaching and the servants, the pre-deacons, are serving by meeting the physical needs of the body. All this is done to promote the health and unity of the body. So what does, what do rather the deacons do? What are we thinking about that they should be doing? Three big categories. They assist the overseers by serving the congregation. I don't believe this is on your sheet. They assist the overseers by serving the congregation. You have one group of men directing the action and another group of men facilitating. They meet the needs of the apostles by freeing them to function how they've been gifted and equipped. So it allows the apostles not to be free of service, that word is even used, but free to serve where they're uniquely gifted. That's helpful. That's the design. 
These proto-deacons also serve under the leadership and direction of those providing oversight. They're also serving the congregation by recognizing, organizing, and meeting a tangible need. Second, they serve by meeting this tangible need. They're tasked to a specific issue, to solve a situation, a crisis. Third, they serve to promote unity. The service of these men promoted the entire well-being of the body and protected it from rising disagreement and hurt and hurting the reputation of the gospel. I want to show you a video. We're going to look at two tonight. They're, they're short, but that emphasize or reaffirm what we're looking at. Um, these were done by the author of this book. Okay, So we'll watch the first one now. I'm convinced the most overlooked job responsibility of a deacon is being a shock absorber, protecting and promoting the unity of the church. Now, where where am I getting this from? Well, the most famous passage associated with the office of deacon is Acts chapter 6. And while I don't think that Acts 6 is the official establishment of the office of deacon, I do believe it's setting in motion a pattern that will become the position. So we can draw principles from how we see the apostles in the seven operating in that story for the work of elders and deacons today. And one of the most interesting things to note, and I think it's often overlooked in that story, is that the seven were not deployed merely to solve a food crisis. Yeah, food was the presenting issue, the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked in the daily food distribution in the church of Jerusalem. And it it led to uh, a problem. And and the the apostles said to the congregation, choose from among yourselves those who can can solve this. And, And that's how the seven were raised up. But while food was the occasion, it was not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem was a sudden threat to church unity. And that's why this was such a massive issue. And it's the, the apostles didn't delegate this to the seven because it wasn't important. They delegated it because it was. The apostles could have just imposed a swift, superficial solution and then moved on. But instead, they delegated the problem and deployed the seven to create an ongoing solution and a permanent structural solution, that, uh, an official office in the church eventually. And so what the seven were tasked to do was to safeguard the very unity for which Christ died. And in the the chapters leading up to Acts 6, things are going swimmingly. The, The word of God is spreading and Satan is being thwarted. And yet when you get to chapter 6, it's like the ominous music in the score in Luke's score begins to change, and you realize, oh wow, I don't know how this is going to play out. Um, there, th- this this church is experiencing a division along a very natural fault line, cultural, ethnic, and this could lead to the the breakdown of church unity. And so the seven rise up and respond with a creative solution to. Uh, to, to muffle the shockwaves rather than make them reverberate further. So, when you're looking for deacons in your church, do not look for contentious persons. A, a contentious person makes a very poor deacon because that kind of person will only compound the kind of headaches that deacons are meant to relieve. Deacons, rather, should be those who have fine-tuned conflict radar, who who love solutions more than drama, and who rise to respond in creatively constructive ways to promote the harmony of the whole. Um, So so look for the encouragers. Look for those who, uh, as I said, will absorb shock and safeguard the, the, the ministry of the elders, but most importantly, the reputation of King Jesus as his church remains united. So what we want to affirm very strongly is that deacons are an irreplaceable gift to Christ's body. And I want you to hear from me, representing even our pastors, your deacons currently are an irreplaceable gift to our body. 
our trustees, our servants. We've been continuing to work with them, and we have wonderful men to work with that are eager to serve this church so that the pastors can do the work of the word and prayer. I'm so thankful for how this is working. I was so encouraged last year when we had so many qualified men that were able to be on a ballot, to be up for these offices. Uh, As I think of the coming years as we work through this change, as I've talked to individual members of the body, name after name of man, of a men who are growing in this, keeps coming to the lips of our members. God is growing the men in our church. And that's an incredible, incredible blessing that honestly is becoming more and more rare today. So we need to be extremely grateful even as we seek to say, okay, how do we keep refining and becoming more biblical and more, uh, more in line with the pattern we see in the New Testament? This should be overwhelmingly encouraging to us. And then the second piece is by way of application. I know for some of you, at least many of you, half of you, you're not going to be a deacon unless we revisit, you know, 1 Timothy 3 and have some idea about deaconess, right? But at this point, what, what are we supposed to see for us in that? Is every single person in the body is called to be a servant, right? Jesus is the preeminent servant. We'll talk about that in a, in a minute when we conclude this talk. So we're all supposed to be thinking about how am I serving Christ's church? Where I'm gifted, where I'm able. Am I investing? So deacons are an irreplaceable gift to Christ's church. They're model servants who excel in being attentive and responsive to tangible needs in the life of the church. I can't tell you how many times I've had current deacons tell me, hey, let me take care of that so you can keep working on your studies, on discipling, on building up the body in the ways that you're gifted. In what ways do they serve? By assisting the elders, guarding the ministry of the word, organizing service, caring for the needy, preserving unity, mobilizing ministry, and more. They're task-oriented servants who meet specific needs within the congregation as they're directed by the overseers. Godly deacons serve God's church by, we're just reviewing, spotting and meeting tangible needs, protecting and promoting church unity, serving and supporting the ministry of the elders. I thought this threefold description of the job descriptions in one sentence form was helpful. Elders lead the ministry, deacons facilitate the ministry, the body does the ministry, right? That's Ephesians 4. Now, why would we say that deacons are subordinate to the elders? Okay, this does not mean they're less important. This means they function underneath. They facilitate the leadership. Uh, they facilitate the ministry as the elders lead. Why are they subordinate? They are never called to oversee, rule, or lead the body in the New Testament. Not once. The body is never called to follow or submit to them. They're always listed after the elders. And now, one thing, don't over, we can't overstate that because they're always listed right after the elders. They're an important part of the leadership team, and that's how we should see it. And lastly, they help facilitate ministry in order to allow others to prioritize the ministry of the word and prayer. We need to be careful to maintain the right balance that the Bible gives us. They're important, but they have a, a function, a role that they serve under the leadership of the elders. Uh, I want to show you the second video. Again, this is just two to three minutes on what's the difference, how do they relate to one another, elders and deacons. What's the difference between elders and deacons? There's a lot of confusion out there, which is one of the reasons that I wrote this book to try to clear away some of that confusion and bring us back to what Scripture says about the two offices and how they're supposed to relate. So the office of elder is an office of spiritual oversight and an office of teaching in the life of the church, whereas the office of deacon is an office of practical service. Now, you can drive a wedge between those adjectives and and create too much of a distinction there because, of course, elders are called to serve and deacons have a measure of of leadership that that has been delegated to them from the elders. It's been said that elders serve by leading and deacons lead by serving. And and I think there's a, a lot of truth to that. One of the main distinctions is that the office of elder or pastor 
is a shepherding role where you have oversight, shepherding responsibility, teaching responsibility over the whole congregation. Whereas with deacons, you're not necessarily exercising that kind of authority and even influence over the whole congregation. It's often over one area in the life of the church. Deacons, what we never in the New Testament find a verse like, be subject to the deacons. But we do find in 1 Peter chapter 5, be subject to the elders. But we don't find a verse like, obey your deacons and submit to them. But we do find that verse really, uh, you know, for elders in Hebrews 13, 17. And so it's very important to maintain the distinction between the offices without wrongly demoting deacons, but we want to maintain the distinction between the office if we're going to be able to experience both in the way that God intended it for our good. I think he makes uh, one final statement or paragraph that I thought was really helpful to kind of clear up this issue as to who we're looking at or rather encourage us. If you want to find a qualified deacon, don't look at his garage to see how many tools he has. Don't look at his financial portfolio to see how many investments he has. Don't look at his company to see how many employees he has. Look first at his attitude, his character, his life. Is he eager to listen or is he angling to be heard? Is he humble and flexible, or does he always insist on his own way? Does he covet status, or does he yearn to serve? Gratefully, we don't have to improvise deacon qualifications. The Bible provides them plainly. The last thing I want to say is give a final illustration, and then we'll take some questions um, from the life of Jesus. What I think is so amazing is Jesus models both roles perfectly, doesn't he? He is the good shepherd, the overseer of our souls, and he is the perfect servant, the suffering servant who humbles himself and serves in whatever way we need. John 13 gives us that illustration, and Tim Keller draws two implications for deacon work from John 13. His words are actually pretty um, hard-hitting applicationally. Think of how he describes Jesus First of all, Jesus washed feet despite his impending death. Think about what's about to come for Jesus. He was to have the wrath of God poured out on him. He was feeling the tremendous weight of that, even at that supper. When we are hurting with a load of care on our backs, do we look around and notice people's feet that need to be washed? No. Do we look for little ways to serve? No. We are usually absorbed in our own troubles, and we want people to take care of us. A real servant does not say, when I get my life together, when I get over my blues, when I get my schedule in order, then I'll start to minister. Perhaps you are hurting, and you may even be angry because no one is noticing. But where would you be if Jesus had that attitude? Second, Jesus served, think of this, despite the unworthiness of the disciples. Notice John's reminder that Jesus knew the betrayer was present. Jesus saw them all, one betrayer, one denier, all forsakers. When he needed them most, they would leave him. One of those sets of feet was dirty and sore from an errand that arranged for his torture in death. And what did Jesus do to those feet? You wash them. This is how Christ serves us. This is what service, happy, joyful, contented, humble service looks like in the body. It looks like our Christ. No matter what position you have or don't have, God's people are Christians, little Christ. So whatever service we have, we want it to reflect back on him because he's the one that's worthy, not us. As we move forward, I want to give you a few moments, um, the next uh, almost 10 minutes, to ask any questions you might have. They might be all kinds of things. We've covered a lot of things. I know it's been a little while since we talked through the elder piece, um, but you're welcome to ask questions. I will do my best to answer them and reserve right to say, let me get back with you. Any questions come to mind tonight?
So one thing I want um, you to know is that our, our, um, the way we're going to do our deacons is probably a little bit of a hybrid in this sense. Um, so even in his book, he says there's different ways for that churches organize deacon ministry. Some focus just on mercy. Um, some focus on they help with the care of the body. And there is a third category. Um, what we are planning to do is it actually won't look very much different than what it does now. We'll relook at each of these roles. The elders will lead in saying, okay, what roles do we need filled? We'll ask for the body to give input on that, but we'll be working to examine the qualifications as the pastors for who those men are. We don't want you to be surprised, especially this first time, as to who these men are. So you will have seen them serving, all right? But our two, our two spheres are this. Uh, right now, we have a wonderful partnership between the pastors and the deacons, where between 12 men, we've split up the entire membership of the body. So we each have somewhere between 15 to 20 names that we're praying for. We're often contacting monthly, maybe quarterly, and finding out what needs. So there's oversight, care. It's more care that way. Um, we want there to continue to be 12 men who are doing that. So however many elders we add, we want to add that many number of deacons to member care. So we'll have a category of deacons called deacons of member care. There will be several of those, a handful of those. And then we will take the roles that we have filled right now by men who are serving as trustees and give those task-oriented roles. So for instance, an easy one um, is a deacon of technology. We have Matt Marks, who's serving as the leader of our technology. He really is serving in a way that allows us to worship and not really pay attention to all that happens back there and needs to happen back there, right? We have a deacon of service right now. He, does, he leads the service squad. He's one of our deacons, Jim Nicely. Um, and he, when there's an, uh, a need in the church, next Sunday night, we'll be having a church-wide fellowship. Jim is tasked with organizing that, making sure everything's set up, helping gather people to help with that. We have members who've served up to help with that. Um, we have a deacon of hospitality. Um, we'll, have, so we'll have a deacon of facilities. Um, so all kinds of pieces like that, and we'll keep filling out those roles, if that makes sense. So we'll, that, that position, those positions can come and go as we see need. Like one that sometimes people think is silly, but... Um, the example is given in a place where the parking is sparse and people start fighting over parking lot or double parking, being unsafe. Uh, so one church had deacon of parking because it really was a problem of unity in the body. Um, let's say once they get the parking lot paved or expanded, that deacon role can go away and that's just fine. So as we work on the constitution, one of the pieces you'll see is when they come in, we can add a deacon role at any point in the year as the need arises but their terms will go based on the annual meeting. So we'll, we'll just base it on, they get three-year terms. Um, if they start, let's say, in June, we'll just figure that into uh, year one of their service, or um, they get three and a half years, maybe. We'll see. Does that make sense? Yeah, Daniel? So would there be a place where we would see like a list of all of those offices and who's filling that role? Yes. Yes, as we get closer to that time, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll list out those roles. So on um, October 8th, so that's in two weeks, we'll go through the Constitution and tell you part of what, what we're looking for in those roles. Would there be like an ongoing place where I could like go to Subaru.org and see a list of roles who's in those roles? Like if I had a question yeah. facilities or Yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Absolutely. We would put that in our, um, probably on a place like, you know, I guess the about section on a website that says who does what. Yes, Jonathan said again. Yes, like you said. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so that wouldn't always happen. So I think what we're trying to do is in the transition, make it as smooth as possible, as seamless, sensible as possible, reasonable. Um, my intention is to work through all the qualifications again um, and talk through that with him and see if he's willing to do that. So we're not just assuming 
Um, again, the deacons uh, or the elders will put up the candidate and the church will, the congregation will vote. That is a real vote because they can say no. But hopefully, we're not going to get to a point where the elders are saying, this is a good guy for the position, and the body says, no way, that's a bad guy for the position. There's some problem, right? So while the body can say no, it shouldn't happen a lot. And one of the mechanisms we're putting into the Constitution is, if you want to say no, you need to come tell us why in person. You know, because we're more interested in not filling roles. We're interested in people's growth, their discipleship. The other piece that I was going to say in a couple of, of weeks, but I honestly think this has been helpful to think about. Um, I was encouraged by another pastor who changed their constitution just a few years ago. He just said, we told our body it is going to take us a little while to figure out where this constitution is serving us well and where we need to continue to make amendments. And I don't want us to think that this is fixed forever and settled in heaven. Once we have voted yes on our constitution, we can make amendments and we will, as the leadership of the church, continue to evaluate, is this serving us best or do we need to make some changes? We don't want that to be like two weeks in and say, oh, we, we didn't think of this. Um, that, that's, I don't believe that's going to happen. That's why we're asking you to help us with that. Um, but largely, I think we have a good document, um, and we want to keep uh, working and refining that. Okay? Tim. Uh, just a comment. Um, we started talking about qualifications, and primarily they're character-related. But then you talk, talking about we have specific needs of the church, and it's going to be really easy to focus on the need and then forget about the character. Yes. Yes. So one of the things that we're working on is a nomination form that lists the character qualities. So you're going to, as a body, get to suggest who you think would be a good uh, nominee for this office after you've worked through. Now, this is on the membership to think through carefully. Work through those qualifications and you sign your name and say, I think this man fits this role. Right understanding what we're coming to. This also will be, that's a very good point. This also isn't something that we talk about once and then never come back to. Okay, we made our switch and we'll never talk about leadership and how we're organized ever again. I think we'll need to hear this from time to time. So that's a really good point. Good, what else? Yes, Shane? So will that nomination thing happen at like a specific time and day or is that just like as... Very, yeah, very good question. So um, this year it will be different than in the future because all of it's starting at once. Once they're in place, they're three-year terms. Um, so it will operate normally where we'll say, let's say we all of a sudden need a deacon of parking because, I don't know, there's all kinds of potholes and we need somebody to direct. I don't know. Um, and we come up with that in June, we'll say, we need a deacon of parking, here's the nomination form, fill it out and give us your recommendations. At the same time, the, the elders are looking and putting their minds onto this issue, examining, we know what's happening in the body, um, in people's spiritual lives, we're supposed to, better than anybody, so what we're looking for from the body is affirmation, maybe picking out telling us about people we haven't maybe thought about, we're helping each other in this process. We really need to think of it that way. Um, but even as you see in Acts, the, the leaders are leading and the congregation is helping and affirming. There's no specifics of how that happens in the Bible, so we want to just be very careful with each other in promoting unity. I'm, I'm not worried about that. I just want to keep explaining that for us. Okay, Ed? In a church that is elder and deacon organized church. Yes. Clearly, those who are elders are men who are called to work as a body mm. using various, because within that body there are a variety of gifts yeah. so that they are going to be doing different things yeah. analogous to deacons fixing potholes. Yeah. But they're different kinds of holes. Yeah. So they have filling different roles. Yeah. In the same way, if I understand the way this, this manner of a nice scripture organization works, yeah. a, a body of deacons is a group of called servants who work together as a body 
while some may have different areas of concentration, yeah. they are nevertheless a unitary body of people working together with but one goal, and yeah. that is supporting the ministry of the church. Yeah, yeah. So that absolutely, we, because one could possibly take the view that we've got. Six different de deacon boards. No, we have one yeah, board yeah, yeah, yeah. with a variety of tasks and, yeah. tasks and gifts yeah. to be used That's to right. support the church. Yeah, and they'll keep working with the elders to keep on task and keep focused in their area. Yeah. The second point is, it is interesting if you go back to the area in, in the really good illustration in Acts, there's something that does not appear there, and we make sure, should make sure that it doesn't appear here. Because it doesn't say, and the apostles then followed around the seven, making sure they did their job well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay? Yes. Yeah. Elders, yeah. Jobs, the spiritual health yeah. and of the church and the, and the spread of the gospel and to serve the Lord yeah. in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Very good. Yes, sir. I don't know if any thoughts have given to it, but uh, is there any consideration for the first time to stagger the offices of not all three years? Yes. The same set, exactly. Some from two years? Yes. So, for especially if we're saying a guy is moving from one role to another that's very similar, that's the plan, is to say, you know, we're going to count your first year. Because currently they're two year terms. So, we'll say, okay, you've already served one year. Will you be willing to serve? Does that make sense? It's a little complicated to explain, but you're exactly right. We don't want everybody being renewed in three years. Exactly right. Yep, absolutely. Yes, sir. Last question. Yes. I've, I've heard most pastors say that you're not only qualified, but they are called hmm. to be a pastor uh, themselves. And then they go to a church that is called and they're supporting. When it comes to then the deacons, they're asked, would you be, be willing to be one? But is there an element that that deacon candidate should feel that they are called to be a deacon, or is the calling only for overseers and pastors? Yeah, I, I would have to state that more closely. What I would examine in the discussion, especially with elders, it's part of that calling is do they desire that work? Um, and, and there's part of that where that's their personal working through that calling. Um, the other side for deacons, I don't see that as explicit, but I would want to know a very similar thing. Um, so you can frame that in different ways. I've heard calling used in, in many different ways, some more helpful than others. Um, but definitely that's part of what's going to be, part of what we have to do as, as the pastors is talk through that with the men and say, are you willing and able? Are you qualified? What's going on in your life? That's a good chance to disciple. These are very healthy, profitable conversations.